Welcome to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. My name is Andrea Wilson-Woods, and I'm the CEO and co-founder of Cancer U. Join me each week as I interview cancer patients, caregivers, survivors, and providers about their cancer journeys. You're listening to Cancer Youth Thrivers, where real people share true stories. When bodybuilder Richard Bagdonis was diagnosed with cancer at the age of 45, he set out to design a new fitness regimen to help him fight that battle, one that would keep his mind and body strong enough to win. After beating stage four cancer and then COVID pneumonia, Richard started sharing his workout story and building a dedicated community of fit fab warriors. Richard, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Thanks so much for having me, Andrea. I really appreciate it. I am so excited to hear your story. And it sounds like, I'm just looking at you, that it was fairly recent. Am I correct about that? Yeah, that was just a few years ago. So tell us, uh, stage four, you know, very serious. Tell us what happened. Were there symptoms? Kind of take us back to the beginning. Yeah, you know, this this goes back to October of 2018, so just a few years ago. Yeah. Um, my family and I went to Mexico. We had a great time. I love fruit. And while I was there, I happened to have some papaya that had a little bacteria in it called Cyclospora. And it is the thing that typically generates Montezuma's Revenge. Mm. And so I brought Montezuma's Revenge back to Austin. It just wasn't stopping, unfortunately. And so... Like any good doctor, my doctor asked me to go to a gastroenterologist. And like any gastroenterologist, they are a hammer looking for a nail. However, their hammer is a camera, and the nail just happens to be our butt. So <laughs> I, <laughs> so you got a colonoscopy. Is what you're well, I got a colonoscopy. <laughs> and after the colonoscopy was over, the doctor said, everything looked great. There was a little inflammation, took a little snippet, but we're great. Two weeks later, I got a call. They wanted me to come in the office. I wasn't able to come in the office. Uh, the doctor was adamant that he, they talked to me. And so I got home that evening. I called the doctor and he said, you've won the lottery. You've got a golden lottery ticket. You have cancer. And how those two things are aligned were not clear in the beginning, but they did become clear later on. And so I walked up into my wife's office because we both worked home office. I was downstairs. She was upstairs. I sat, her, I sat down in her office and I said, I have cancer. And immediately the world just shrunk and it just closed in on us. Yeah. And Colorectal we, cancer? No, it turned okay. out to be stage four mantle cell lymphoma, which is a rare type of lymphoma found in 6% of the patients. And with stage four, it was about a three to five year life expectancy back in 2018. You know, I looked up mantle cell lymphoma on Google and I freaked myself out. So did my wife. Yeah. I wasn't really experiencing symptoms, or at least I wasn't connecting the symptoms that I had with the cancer that was in my body. And so the next thing was to try to figure out what this is. And luckily, I've been a part of the Pink Sox community, which is this large healthcare network. And I reached out to them and said, I need help. And we found the doctor in the world, sponsored and, and, and um, 
backed by the federal government under the Cancer Moonshot Program, whose job it was, was to cure this cancer, the specific wow. one that I had. Where was he located? He's uh, Dr. Michael Wong is at uh, MD Anderson in Houston, just two oh. and a half hours drive from our wow. house. Wow. If you could awesome. believe. Yeah. So what, I mean, I, I don't think I've ever heard of this type of lymphoma. So what were sort of next steps and um, what other symptoms you said you didn't align the symptoms you had with the actual disease. So what other symptoms did you have? It turned out the fatigue that I was feeling wasn't just because I was over 40 and, and everything <laughs> kind of hurts and everything's a little slower after 40, uh, but it actually turned out that my body was fighting something and it was draining my energy. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. Yep. And so the next thing was to try to figure out what this was. And I wrote a letter, uh, email actually, to Dr. Michael Wong at MD Anderson. I happened to find his information from one of his former patients. He responded right away. And within four days, I was in his office uh, and he was uh, meeting with me and scheduling tests. Okay. And so, I mean, what, what did he propose for treatment? Is there treatment for this type of lymphoma? I mean, what, what did he suggest? Well, this is the, this is where things get really interesting. And this is where that golden lottery ticket started to take shape. Okay, good. Cause that does need some serious explanation. <laughs> we do need to explain that a bit. <laughs> so for 15 years, Dr. Wong was trying to get two pharmaceutical companies that both had immunotherapy treatments to work together because he believed, and his hypothesis was, these two working in conjunction with each other would provide for a chemo and radiation-free therapy to cure mantle cell lymphoma. And the best part is, I was patient number one. So when I received the treatment, there was no one else that had received this treatment in the same manner people had received portions of it with chemo and with radiation. And that first day he said, you're not going to lose your hair. You're not going to go through radiation or chemo. And so um, I went into this treatment and in 56 calendar days, I was cured of cancer. What? what? Let me say that again. 56 calendar days, eight oh weeks. It was goodness. amazing. So he put he two approved immunotherapy drugs, but put them in this combination that they had not been used before. Correct. To, one to was treat. called yeah. One was called ibrutinib. The other one is rituxan, and those two together, one is a pill, one is a, a drip that you get as an infusion. And if you ask my wife, she'll say that within about twelve to fourteen days, I was much better. My body was probably healed at that point. Were there any side effects from the immunotherapy drugs? Because there usually are, but. You know, I didn't, I didn't um, have any. And I think the reason why is because of the workout that I was doing, the meditations that I was doing, the fact that I don't smoke, I don't drink, I was eating healthy, and I was able to focus on getting better. So let's talk about that. Before you were diagnosed with cancer, you were already into fitness. So tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll go back to cancer. Yeah, well, I had started life playing football and wrestling in high school, and I was pushed into the gym by my coaches. And I kept going with that after high school and became a bodybuilder. Um, I uh, 
uh, then got into my uh, late 20s and I stopped bodybuilding. Uh, I needed to exercise, so I picked up running and I ran off about 50 pounds. Then when I got into my 40s, I really wanted to get back into the gym. And I realized that I just wasn't able to go back to the gym and not get hurt. Uh, everything that I had learned previously in my workout career was basically working against my body. And so I started testing different ways to work out um, and try to figure out what worked for me. And it turns out I, I, I found some things that worked and I started writing them down as just a Google Doc that I could share with friends in case they were wanting to do something similar. Uh, that, that, that uh, workout methodology is what brought my body to the point of being able to not only withstand cancer treatment, but I excelled through it. I got stronger through cancer treatment. Um, I, I didn't have a side effect. When I got done with an eight-hour infusion in MD Anderson, I'd go rent a bike and I'd, you know, you know, ride my bike around, ride that bike around Houston and the medical center right after it, where most patients were having to go home and lay in bed. Did your doctors think you were crazy? I'm just curious. <laughs> I'm, I think there's a little bit of craziness to this, absolutely. <laughs> uh, and I think it's really about just focusing on getting better. Okay. So I have a question, um, and this is a little bit of a digression. So what was it about working out in your 40s? the workouts that you were trying to do that you had done in your twenties, was it just because you were older? Was it, I mean, what had changed that you had to come up with an entirely different regimen? I'm just curious. You know, when I had previously worked out of the gym, uh, because of the repetitious nature of it, I formed something called bicepital tendonitis in both arms. My biceps, the tendons that run through them, were so injured that I couldn't even pick up a cup of coffee or a can of soup. And so my arms were basically useless, which is when I went to running. Well, I really wanted to get back into the gym. And I knew that if I used the same techniques, because I tried them when I went to the gym after 40, yeah. I was consistently injured going home. And then I'm no longer in the gym. Right. I'm not getting the benefit of the gym. And so I had to adjust my ego and the way that I'm working out, how much I'm lifting, and really how I'm lifting and how I'm recovering in order to allow my body to thrive. Because after 40, our bodies just have some changes. There's hormone changes. We start losing muscle mass and bone density. Um, there's a lot of aspects to our life that have built up these injuries that are exacerbated when we go to the gym. Okay. And... So before you had cancer, you had already created this methodology. Yeah. Had you already had this, this um, sort of training program and this website that I've already checked out? Did you already have that or did that come later? No, I, uh, I started writing the book the very first month of cancer treatment. I, I realized that I should take this Google Doc that was a bunch of notes that I was sharing with folks, and I should memorialize it in a manner that even if I didn't make it through cancer treatment, my wife would be able to at least publish it partially unfinished in order to get the message out. And luckily, and I think with a lot of, um, with a lot of dedication, I was able to not only um, survive cancer treatment, I crushed it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was able to finish the book. And on January 18th of 2022, the book was um, published. 
Oh gosh, that was recent. Just so people know we're recording this in, in March. Um, okay. Wow. All right. So don't let me forget to follow up on that later. Um, so how many kids do you have and what did you tell them about cancer? Yeah, we have two boys, nine and six. And at the time they were six and three. Yeah. One of the things that was very challenging was we didn't want to leave them in the lurch and find out from someone else that their father had cancer. Yeah. And so we were very upfront with them. And the framework that we use is one that I've written about, I've shared, and I'm a big believer in. And that is our six-year-old son um, was the leader of our children. And our youngest son, who was three, would just follow suit with, with, with whatever his older brother did. And so my wife and I sat our older son, Alec, down. I recorded audio on my phone. And we talked to him about the fact that our bodies form cancer every day. You know, every seven years, every cell in our body is, is replaced. Sometimes those cells grow a little faster than they should. And when they grow too fast and our body can't control them, that's cancer. Yeah. I said, so that's, that's what's happening inside of my body. And we explained the treatments that I was going to get. We explained that we needed his support because as I was going back and forth to Houston quite often, I'm going to feel a little yucky. Sometimes I might be a little tired. I might be a little grumpy and anything he could do to provide, you know, love and encouragement would be appreciated. Well, then we took that recording and we sent it to his teacher and the parents of every one of his friends. So they had the messaging framework to use when having the discussion with their children. And so we never dealt with a situation where our sons were ridiculed about their, their father having cancer. At school, everyone was very supportive. And the teacher actually said that most of the time, a cancer diagnosis can really crush a kid's year at school. Yeah. And at six, he was in second grade or maybe first grade at the time. Um, and this was a vital year for him. And it turned out he excelled. He got a hundred. He, he crushed it himself. I think that was a really, really smart thing to do. Not just the teachers, but I mean, the, the, his, um, the friends, the, the parents, um, other parents, that was really, really smart. Thanks. Yeah. Um, what does, I mean, it's only been a couple of years. So what does he remember about it now? And, and does the little one remember at all? You know, the funny thing is the little one barely remembers. Um, it was a, there was a lot of commotion. He was a trooper throughout the whole thing. Uh, and luckily, uh, he had his bro older brother to rely on and look as a role model through it. Our older son does remember it. And when people would ask them at, at the time, you know, hey, I heard your dad has cancer. He'd say, yeah, and he's doing great. And when I received the notification two months in that my cancer, you know, I can't say my cancer. I don't like to personalize it. The cancer that was in my body was completely gone. Uh, we all celebrated. And it's one of those things that really hit me close to home because my father passed away when I was just about turning 13. And here I was with a, with a six-year-old and a three-year-old looking at it and saying, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do the same thing that my father did for me. And I, that made me feel like I was not doing enough and I was doing something wrong because I couldn't make it past 12 for my sons. Oh gosh. I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like from what you're telling me now that you 
had any concerns that you weren't going to make it? Did did you no, have any concerns? I didn't. The reason why is when I first met with my wife and we talked about it, we came up with an agreement that worked out really well. Because my body was going through something that it needed to heal with, and my brain is focused on running my body, it should not have any negative thoughts in it because those negative thoughts could potentially impact how it heals. And so our agreement was that anything that needed to be stressed about, my wife Tina would stress about. My focus was the fact that my, my brain was already past treatment and my body just needed to catch up. And because we were able to separate out the stress from the healing, my brain was fully engaged with my body and the two, because they were so aligned, healed really fast. That puts a lot of pressure on your wife. It does. However, I've had the opportunity to return uh, the gift, and I'm doing so right now. How so? It was a couple months ago that my wife was going in to uh, consider getting some surgery on her sinuses. And when they ran a CT scan, they found a benign tumor behind her left eyeball, the size of an eyeball. And it had put additional pressure on her brain and has been causing migraines. And so on March 23rd of this year, we're going back to MD Anderson and my wife is going to have brain surgery to remove the tumor and fix her eye socket because it's been impacted on there. And the agreement went back the other way, which is my, you know, Tina needs to focus on healing. She needs to be focused on the fact that she's already passed this. And I'll take on the stress of worrying about, is she going to the right doctor? Is she getting the right treatment? Is she doing the right things to make sure we're prepared for it? Wow. Not a lot of people can say that. No. They really can't. I can't tell you how many. Now that I think about it, it's kind of interesting because most of the men I speak with talk about how supportive their partners are, whether they're married or not. And so many of the women I speak with, um, if, they, if they're the patient, um, often end up getting separated or divorced. Yeah. It's one of those times where ego needs to be set aside. We have to lead with love. And for us to be able to share this together, we've become a stronger couple. When I went through my situation and with COVID pneumonia, Tina was stressed, I mean, to the nth degree, and she held it together and she did so without really showing her emotions to the children or to me. And so, and she relates these stories. She would go out back and go for a walk and just cry mm -hmm. and then come back in, compose herself and get back to doing what needed to be done. Um, I, I, I can't thank her enough. And I couldn't imagine uh, being in that position until recently. Yeah. Wow. Well, you'll have to let me know how the surgery goes. I'm glad to hear that it's benign, but like you said, it's still brain surgery. So it's quite serious. Yeah. It's not often that we think like, oh, well, we just got done with cancer. Oh, we just got done with COVID. Hey, now let's worry about <laughs> a brain tumor. <laughs> well, let's go back to COVID for a second. So um, you tell us about COVID pneumonia, because certainly you are one of those people, despite how healthy you are, despite how young you are, you are one of those people having just survived cancer who was definitely in a higher risk category for getting COVID. So tell us a little bit about that. Oh, absolutely. And in, in uh, 2019, I was cured of cancer. In 2020, in June, I caught COVID. 
This is before the vaccine. This is very early. Yeah, yeah, very early. People just didn't know what was going on. And after six weeks in bed on my back and my uh, breathing being strained towards the end, my oncologist finally told me, you should go to the hospital. We've been keeping you from the hospital because of the situation that was at the time very, very detrimental to people's health. And I went into the hospital. I was hospitalized twice. The first time they sent me home, they said, there's nothing we can do for you. Come back when things get worse. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Four days later on my birthday, they had me come back in and they admitted me to the hospital. Um, however, I was put into an I, uh, a COVID isolation unit with a bunch of other people. We each had individual rooms. Nurses would come by once every two hours. And they told me, we have you on three liters of oxygen per minute. And as your needs increase, we're going to bump that up. Once we get to six liters of oxygen per minute, we are going to put you in a medically induced coma and intubate you. And at that point, you're on your own. There's nothing we can do. And I was really nervous because at the time, intubation was a pretty significant direction towards death. Yeah. And the, you know, I, I was worried about that. And also, they put me in a room that didn't have a toilet. So the only thing that they gave me for a toilet was a small aluminum frame with a Home Depot bucket on it and a, and a, a, a toilet lid on top of that. And because it was during the pandemic, there was no toilet paper. They didn't have any. No. So I looked at this thing and, and I stared at it. And I'm like, there's no way. I'm, no, there's no way. <laughs> so, it, it was, it was uh, quite, uh, quite empowering to have me look at that and say, I need to get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> so thankfully, they had put a, a, a pulse oxygen sensor on my finger. Yeah. And so the pulse ox oximeter behind me was meant for the healthcare professionals to look at the numbers. Right. It wasn't intended for me to look at them. And so what I did is I turned around and I sat up for 18 hours and I looked and stared at this machine and I watched what happened every time I took a breath, every time I coughed, every time I sneezed. And I had 30% lung capacity at the time. And so I figured out a way to breathe with 30% lung capacity. And after 18 hours, I asked them, I said, I don't think I need as much oxygen as you're giving me. And they lowered it from three to two and a half liters per minute. And then they said, see in two hours. Two hours later, they came back. Nothing had changed. Then they, they said, okay, well, we're going to lower it to one and a half and see what happens. Two hours later, they came back. Nothing had changed because I was watching that pulse oximeter like, like a hawk. Um, and then I said, well, can we cut it down again? And they said, no, nah, just take it off. So it was the first time that I pulled the cannula out of my nose. I took my mask off and I sat there breathing and my breathing technique worked because if I coughed, I would lose my breath for five breaths. It felt like I was drowning. And so the big message with COVID pneumonia was don't cough, don't sneeze, take small breaths and we can get through this. And so after that two hour period was up, the doctors were called again they, uh, I said, you know, I want to get out of here. How do I do that? And they said, well, we need you to walk around the room and your, your blood oxygen shouldn't get below 90%. Now keep in mind, I hadn't walked in six weeks. My muscles had atrophied a bit. 
Um, my feet had never felt pressure on them in six weeks. And so as I got up to stand up and walk around the room, it was like walking on needles. And I was hunched over and I had this pulse oximeter on my finger and I was taking these small baby steps around the room and I was pointing at the machine and saying, look, 94%. <laughs> and I go and they said, keep walking. <laughs> so I kept walking around the room and they're like, I, I, okay, we got to let you go. But they had never let somebody out of the hospital that still had COVID, let alone COVID pneumonia. And 30 minutes later, they came back with a plan, which was to take a, a wheelchair, cover it in a sheet put me on the wheelchair and then cover the whole thing in a sheet and wheel me out the back door to my wife's car. And they did. <laughs> and it was crazy. Oh gosh. Oh, what a great story. Um, and even a, a great COVID story because it really is the worst place to be if you're sick is to be in the hospital because you're just yeah. more likely to get sick because everybody's sick. And, yeah, I mean- and, and- and it's also about nutrition because yes. when I was at the hospital, you know, at the time I was vegetarian. Now I eat some chicken and some fish. At the time I was vegetarian. And the only thing that they had to bring me were these old ham and cheese sandwiches with a packet of mustard and a packet of mayonnaise. Oh. And I was trying to eat them and I was telling them, I'm not healing with this food. This is not food that's intended to heal. This is just some, some accountant somewhere said, this is a good idea. And cheap. And, and cheap. <laughs> Yeah. And so when I left the hospital uh, and I came home, we used macrobiotic food from a restaurant called Casa de Luz in Austin. And we had delivered, people would have to leave it outside the gate because our, our whole house was COVID. And I used that um, to heal because that food was the nutrition that was pH balance. It reduces the amount of pressure that the system puts on digestion and I was able to actually do really well with the right diet uh, rather than the ham and cheese sandwiches from the hospital. <laughs> Richard, what is one thing you wish you had known at, let's go back to cancer, the beginning of your cancer journey? The one thing I would really wish I would have known, because this would have saved about two weeks of heartache, is that the information that Google has about various cancers is outdated by about 20 years. And most of the information that is created in the last 10 years doesn't show up on it. And so we can go to Dr. Google and Google ourselves into hysteria, which is what I did for about a two week period. That's pretty tough. Yeah, that is such good advice. And you're not the first person to say that. If you could only do one thing to improve healthcare in the US, what would it be and why? Well, the immune system is quite different than our cardiovascular system. Our cardiovascular system has a heart that pumps blood around, whether we're laying down or whether we're standing and running. Our immune system has lymphatic fluid that requires movement to be able to move it around. Yeah. And most of the time when people get sick, they lay down and they slow their immune system down, which slows down healing. I believe that we could do a lot in the U.S. by having folks get massage and movement. It doesn't have to be exercise. It doesn't have to be a gym ex or gym workout, but just movement to move the fluid around so our white blood cells can go and help. Oh, gosh. 
I love that. I know when my sister was sick, um, she would get on the treadmill, even when she had no immune system whatsoever, she would get on the treadmill and walk. Uh, we um, had did massage a lot. Um, so I think that's really well, well put, well said. Thanks. All right. Are you ready to kind of totally switch gears and do the Thriver rapid fire? I am ready to go. Okay. <laughs> Beach, desert, or mountains? Beach. Beach Boys, Beatles, or Rolling Stones? Oh, that's a tough one. Beatles. What is one word that best describes you? Energetic. Before you die, what is the last song you want to hear? It's going to be by the Eagles because, and not Hotel California. That's you. <laughs> Please know. <laughs> yeah, I've heard that way too many times. My first <laughs> concert with my wife was the Eagles. And oh. I think like taking it easy would be an all right thing to do. Oh, that's so sweet. Oh, I love that. What about the last meal you want to eat? Whew. You know, um, I think it's going to go back to something simple from childhood. And that's a really good bowl of cereal, like Cheerios, maybe Honey Nut Cheerios, with banana in it. <laughs> I love it. Okay. And the last person or people you want to see? I'd like to see my family. And I want them to be the last image I see and their words telling me that they love me as the last things I hear. Oh, and on that note, the last words are going to speak. I'll see you soon. And aside from cancer, you, what's one resource you would recommend for cancer patients and caregivers? And also please tell people how they can get in touch with you. Yeah. Um, for cancer patients and cancer caregivers, uh, there is a tool called Reply All Health that allows the patient or their caregiver to send a text message to a number that then sends individual text messages to everyone in their support group. And it completely eliminates crosstalk on multiple people being on the same thread. And it allows every to be, everybody to be updated all at once. Oh, that's really cool. Okay. I love yeah. it. And how can people get in touch with you? Well, the first place is the website, fitforanybattle.com. And then if they happen to be on Twitter, we are fit for any battle. If they're on Instagram, fit for any battle. If they are in Austin on Thursdays, they'll see me riding my bike with about 40 others around Austin uh, with the Captex cruisers. Oh, that's cool. Oh, wow. Okay. And your book, what's the title of the book again, if they want to get it? Fit for any battle. And on it's Amazon. available on Amazon, uh, Barnes and Nobles, and a variety of others. Okay, great. All right. So we will put the links to all that in the show notes. And Richard, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Andrea, it's been a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. And I appreciate the listeners staying with us. Thank you for listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. If you like our podcast, give us a five-star rating and review and tell your friends about us. Subscribe on Apple Podcast, Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening right now. If you want to share your cancer journey with the world and be a guest on our podcast, go to our website, cancer.university. That's cancer.university. And hit the contact button or click the contact link in the show notes. You've been listening to the Cancer Youth Thrivers podcast. Real people, 
true stories.